You're listening to Two for Tea. I'm your host, Iona Italia. And I'm her frequent co-host, Helen Pluckrose. This is a podcast about politics, society, science and art. And about how everyone is wrong apart from us. This podcast is brought to you in association with ARIO magazine, a digital forum for calm, reasonable voices from across the political spectrum. The podcast is entirely listener-supported. To become a patron and gain access to patron-only broadcasts and other perks, support us on Patreon at 2 for Tea. Welcome to The Conversation. Hello, everyone. My guest this week is Dr. David Robert Grimes, who is a physicist and cancer researcher. He's an assistant professor at Dublin City University and a visiting researcher at Oxford. And he's, his research focuses on radiotherapy physics, oxygen modeling, and on factors influencing public perception and understanding of science. And it's going to be those that latter topic that we'll be discussing here. Since I'm not really qualified to talk about radiotherapy, physics, and oxygen modeling, I have a PhD in English literature. Um, and uh, David, do you prefer David or, or Dave? Either is fine. I'm pretty flexible. Great. So um, David's first book has just been published by Simon & Schuster, The Irrational Ape, Why Flawed Logic Puts Us All at Risk and How Critical Thinking Can Save the World. And um, it's a lovely little romp through the various ways in which we can be blinded by science and fooled by statistics and pseudoscience and woo. Welcome, David. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. So I wanted to start by talking about some of the ways in which we can be can be fooled. And I want to share an experience that I had recently. So um with regard to being fooled by statistics. So maybe we could start there, the way in which people use statistical information to mislead. Absolutely. And we could talk about some of the science-based statistical foolery that's gone on and also um, some of the miscarriages of justice. But I, I encountered this recently. So I recently wrote a deep dive article uh, on circumcision. And that was based on a letter exchange that we've been having over at Letter Wiki. And I almost forgot to do this. I wanted to begin by talking to you about Letter, as I usually do at the beginning of the podcast. So I am involved in this venture. It's a website and app called uh, Letter, www.letter.wiki. And it was founded by Dane and Clyde Rathbone. There are now six of us working at Letter. And it's a place where you can, people write letters to each other one-on-one -on -one publicly. So we have, for example, um, evolutionary biologists Massimo Piliucci and David Sloan Wilson are writing about group selection theory to each other. We also have... Um, Philosophers, um, we have uh, Martin Baudry and Peter Bogosian are writing about the nature of belief. Um, Aaron Rabinovitz is writing to, I can't remember whom, oh, I think to Ben Burgess about moral realism. We have people writing about uh, Enlightenment history. 
uh, and a wide range of academic topics. So academics are writing to each other in these public letters. And we also have more general topics. So people are writing about about weight loss. Um, I'm also doing a number of book reviews on letters. So I've been writing to Thomas Chatterton Williams about his new book, um, A Memoir in Black and White, Unlearning Race. And I'm writing to Nir Ayal currently about his book, Distractable. And we have uh, more personal topics. So people are writing about their political views. We have people writing on very controversial topics on across different sides of debates on abortion, gun control. And I recently, we've also had some very personal conversations. So I recently have been answering letters from Nick Cano on the subject of sexual relationships between older men and younger women. So please um, go ahead and check out our site. And in order to send a letter, you need to either ask somebody who is already on the site if they are willing to receive letters from you. And if they are, you can launch into an exchange. Or if you have a topic you want to write about, but you don't have a correspondent, we actually have a matchmaking service. So either contact me or Jackson Edwards or email humans at karma.wiki. I'll put all this information in the show notes. And we will put our team of um, matchmakers onto it and find you someone to write to. Or alternatively, you can send your letter to our letter in a bottle feature. And all of those letters in a bottle, we look for correspondents who want to write on that topic to answer you. So that's letter. Some of the letter exchanges, especially the interviews, are republished in ARIO magazine, which I edit. And I also write deep dive articles on some of the more interesting exchanges. There's been a series of, I think, about 12 articles I've done so far. And uh, um, I encourage you, David, also to please go and check it out. And if you like what you see, spread the word. Sounds great. Returning to the topic of this conversation... And I will timestamp that part also that I've just uh, said so that people who already know about letter can skip now to the main part of the podcast. So I wrote a deep dive article on circumcision and it began with a letter exchange between um, a medical ethicist. um, Oh, I know Brian. Yeah, Brian's a lovely guy. Yeah. You know Brian. Brian. He's been at Oxford for a while as well, so. Yes, I thought you might know him. Yeah, I think he's returning to Oxford next ye- next year or the year after next. Yeah, it's a funny subject as well. I mean, I don't have much of a horse in the race, but certainly it's one that, uh, it, you know, inf- inf- inflames passions. That's uh, an understatement, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, Brian is also a previous guest on this podcast. So um, when I was researching circumcision, one of the one of the statistics that I came across was that um, the World Health Organization's campaign to circumcise men in Africa is based on the argument that um, being circumcised will reduce your chances of getting HIV by 60%. And this is when I was first introduced to the difference between relative and absolute risk reduction. So the 60% figure comes from 
if the only factor that you compare is whether or not a person was, the man was circumcised, and you're looking at heterosexual AIDS transmission, then you get this 60% figure. If that were the only thing that was, uh, that was in play. But whether or not you've been circumcised is one of the least important factors, risk factors, in determining how likely you are to get HIV. By far the most important are um, whether you use condoms, number of sexual partners, also the, the place where you live, the local epidemiology. Um, so heterosexual HIV is very rare in, the, in Britain and the United States, but it's, it's common in West Africa, for example. And there are a few other factors too. And when you actually uh, look at all the factors and you compare, you get an absolute risk reduction from circumcision of 1.4%. And I was really surprised to see that when I was trying to have this argument with, even with doctors and people with science degrees, um, they either didn't or couldn't understand this difference. So statistics are hard for everyone, even scientists. Absolutely, and in fact, scientists sometimes make some of the most uh, obvious mistakes. I suppose when you're when you're when you're dealing with this as well. So there's no. Um, in most science courses, you actually don't necessarily get statistical training, despite the importance with which we, we treat statistics, and they are important. But context really matters. So you mentioned there the difference between absolute and relative risk. That is a huge difference. And two different sounding numbers can uh, refer to the same thing. Uh, the example some of your listeners might know was back in 2015, there was headlines around the world saying that processed meat was carcinogenic. And there was a talk of a 17% increase in cancer risk on this particular kind of bowel cancer. But those numbers refer to like this. If 61 people per 1,000 would develop uh, this bowel cancer during their lifetime, for those who ate the least amount of processed meat, there was about 56 per 1,000. Whereabouts for the heaviest consumers, it was 66 per 1,000. So the difference between those two numbers is 10, the difference between 66 and 56. And when you put that 10 over 1,000, that's actually less just exactly one percent so the 17 percent number that was reported in the headlines was the relative risk whereabouts the actual real difference that people care about is the absolute risk which is about one percent and what you're referring to in the circumcision story there is again the difference between the real figure that people care about which is about one percent again i think i think you said 1.4 but around that yes one 1.4 was the figure. Um, Brian fact-checked my article, and I think that was the figure that we um, that he's using. Yeah, and there's <clears throat> another confounding factor as well that's probably even more interesting. With a lot of epidemiological studies, you have to be really aware of uh, potential confounding factors, or what we call lurking variables. So as you already point out, there are much higher contributing risk factors to getting HIV than circumcision. In fact, almost everything that is relevant is a higher risk factor. So if you take a group of men in, and I'm sure you and Brian discussed this, you'd also have to work out if they came from more affluent backgrounds, if their backgrounds were substantially different than those people that were on average contracting more HIV. And oftentimes that difference can be really, really substantial. So the idea in statistics is you should be comparing like with like, but if you're not, then all bets are off. Your comparisons are kind of void already. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, I recently saw one also, um, uh, a headline that said, and it was in some science sounding paper, like it wasn't new scientists, but it was something like that. It wasn't, you know, in the Daily Mail. And it said, um, apple-shaped women um, twice as likely to die of heart attacks than pear-shaped. And underneath the, the comment of the person who I was following, had comment, who is a scientist, had commented, um, relative risk increase 200%, absolute risk increase 0.8%. And below she'd run the figures. Yeah. Just extraordinary. Well, you can, you can, the classic example, you can come up with a nice one yourself. And I think this, when I'm teaching students, I like to give an example like this. If I told you that um, doing a particular thing increased your, your chances of a particular cancer by 100%, that sounds terrifying. Most people get very scared. 100% sounds like a big number. But if the odds of you mm, getting that mm. cancer were one in 200 million and it increases by 100%, well, it's only gone up to one in 100 million. It's still minuscule as an absolute risk, but as a relative risk, it's really, really big. And that's why statistics without context, without the baseline to which you have to compare them, are very, very prone to be misleading. There's a good reason why great wits from, from Mark Twain to Oscar Wilde are alleged to have said you know, the three types of lies are lies, <laughs> damned lies, and statistics. We don't know who said that, but statistics out of context are a demagogue's tool. But inside context, they can be very illuminating. It just, they have a, a misleading aura around them because we see a number between zero and 100% and we feel we intuitively understand it. And often we actually don't. That's the big thing. Mm, mm. Yeah, and this I think this is also related to the false um, false positives. Um, can you say something about that? Because I can. So yeah. I I remember doing this exercise actually with blue with two illnesses. One is one causes one causes your skin to turn blue in ninety percent of the cases, and green in ten percent. Um, and we'll call that illness A. And the other one, illness B, causes your skin to turn green in 90% of the cases and blue in 10%. Um, and I had a question on this um, recently. I took a, a, um, an intelligence test and I had to answer this question. It was, given that your face has turned green, which illness do you have? But it was more likely to be the blue causing illness because the blue illness was so much more common. Absolutely. Um, you, you've, hit that, on, you've hit on something really important there. So this is, goes back to statistics and context. You need to know something about prevalence. In fact, the nice example we can use goes back to HIV. So the Western Inkblot ELISA HIV test is a really accurate test. It's like 100% sensitive and 99.99% specific. Now, for the purposes of this discussion, let's say it's 99.99% accurate, although I'm sure a statistician might quibble with me on that. So, Can you just define, because I know there's a sensitive, that means um, how accurate it is at detecting the positive yes, cases? Yes, exactly. So sensitivity and is... And specific is how how, how how few false negatives there are. How likely so, it is to rule out something. So if you don't, right. how likely it is to correctly say you don't have it. So the HIV test is really good at picking up HIV. It's pretty much perfect. And it's pretty good at ruling it out too. So it's 99.99% specific. Now, this is what gets interesting. And I love giving this example because it's a real practical one. 
if you have um, you're you're a low risk person. Let's assume you're not an IV drug user. I won't make any assumptions about you, but I'm going to assume you're in a low risk category. Uh, yeah, definitely. <laughs> I, I, w- I wouldn't dare make any assumptions, but um, if you go in for a HIV test, and again the test is ninety nine point nine nine percent accurate, and it comes back with a positive, what are the odds that you have HIV? Now most people would say they're high. They would think that's a very accurate test. It must be high. The reality is a bit weird. The reality is it's 50%. And the reason for that mm, is the mm. other factor that we, the, the, uh, the elephant in the room that we never think about is the prevalence. So the actual bit of information you needed to answer that question was how common is HIV in a low risk person? And about one in 10,000 people who are low risk will have HIV. So if you imagine 10,000 people walk in tomorrow to get tested, one person has it, and they certainly come up positive, right? But in the remaining mm. 9,999 who don't have it, because the test is only 99.99% specific, it's going to give you one false positive. So now in that group of 10,000, you have two positives, only one of which is a true positive, and therefore your odds on having HIV with a positive test in a low-risk group is actually 50%. And the really important mm. lesson behind that is the accuracy the accuracy of your statistics is entirely dependent on the prevalence of the condition you're testing for. And this goes back to an idea in mathematics, a statistics called Bayes' theorem and Bayesian analysis. But what it does mean is that we're very easily misled. And in the early days of a HIV crisis, there was doctors that didn't fully understand this Bayesian analysis. And before we had antiretroviral treatments that worked very well, they would get a positive test and they would tell patients, uh, you have HIV, go home and get your affairs in order. And, and people would go home mm. thinking they were dying. And then suddenly, mm. three or four years later, go, I actually feel fine. What's up with that? So it's important you know, to put these things in context when you're making diagnoses, for sure. Yes, I actually know somebody who had a false um, positive HIV diagnosis. Um, and of of course, he also sold his house when traveling around the world and <laughs> spent wow. all his money. Um, and um, and he's still with us. <laughs> it's like 20 years later. Yeah, it, it, it's surprisingly common when you give blood because you think all the people who give blood, it, it does happen. It happened to a friend of mine. Uh, and I, as I pointed out to my friend when he got it, the nurse was, she just retested immediately and came back up. Mm, mm. And he was really concerned and we looked it up. This is what got me interested in this years ago. I pointed out to him that he was far too boring to have HIV. Uh, so he was fine. <laughs> yeah. Um, so the the upshot is if you're tested for a rare illness and the test comes back positive, you should not panic yet, but just be retested. That's it. And this is when you know, this gets really complicated when you start talking about screening tests where you have a rare condition and then you have imperfect tests that only have a you know a much less than 100% on their sensitivity and specificity. So for example, cervical screening or uh, breast screening or bowel screening, then you have to be far more aware of the nuances of what a test means. And oftentimes a positive test doesn't mean what you think it does, and a negative test is not necessarily as reassuring as it might be, depending on what condition you're you're testing for. Right, and this is this is the problem with some of the alternative health practitioners who do slews of tests. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, a, an acquaintance of mine who is a 
think she calls herself a functional medicine practitioner. And her her basic uh, modus operandi seems to be that a, a person will come to her with some complaint, with some presenting condition, and she will then do a hundred blood tests. Um, and of those tests, always something will come back um, that is outside or at least a bit outside the bounds of kind of normal values. And then, hey, presto, that person has that illness and needs to take these herbal medications, um, which he also sells. So I, I think it's a, it's a huge racket. Well, I agree. Now, I have a very low opinion of most alternative medicine. I certainly I'm on record for writing about that. Uh, but one of the things you've kind of alluded to there is if you keep throwing tests at people without any real cognizance of why you're giving them tests, they're going to get results that are outside of normal. That's It's the same reason we don't recommend people just go and get full body scans in American hospitals. Because actually, unless mm. you know why you're looking for something, don't look for it. Because by chance, there's a good reason you'll find something. And the more tests you do, um, you can show very quickly that, let's say you have a 1% chance of finding something just by chance. Well, if you throw 100 tests at people, you're almost certainly going to find several things wrong with them. Even if you throw 10 tests at them, you're going to find something that looks like it's wrong on paper. But that's not a diagnostic. Um, and that kind of charlatanism is unfortunately very, very common. Sometimes it's not even deliberate. It's that the people doing it are incredibly incompetent. And they seem to think that their tests are some divine arbiter of truth. When in reality, the tests, mm. you have to have the medical or the scientific expertise to back up why you're using that test. I mean, obviously... You know, it's the old programmer's mantra of garbage in, garbage out. And if you don't know why you're doing a test, you probably shouldn't be doing it. There's a related problem there as well. Um, and I'm not a statistician. I only dabble. But what they would say to you is when you do tests, when you do multiple testing, you're supposed to do things like Bonferretti correction, which is when you take whatever significance level you would have said is significant and you divide it by the number of tests you're going to do to try and eliminate the chance that you find things by accident. Because if you don't do that, you almost certainly will find things there that aren't really there. And that's not good for people. Although it's good for your friend right, selling herbal I, remedies, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, I think in the book you said that if you do 30 tests, then the likelihood um, – you ran some numbers, which I don't remember the exact figures, but I remember that if you did 30 tests, there would be a 95% chance of – um, finding a false positive on one of them. Oh, abso absolutely. And um, you can, if, if you if you change your thresholds, you can make that even higher. Mm. And, and that is why without adjustment, you don't run multiple tests. Uh, it, it would be considered bad practice. But again, you know, the problem with statistics, statistics, I, I sound like I'm knocking them and I really don't mean it that way. They're an incredibly valuable tool. But like any tool, they have to be used correctly. And if you use them incorrectly, well, you're not you're not going to get things that are meaningful and you're going to overinterpret them. And we see it in politics all the time as well, for sure. Right. So there were a couple of extreme um, miscarriages of justice uh, that you detail in the book um, to do with misuse, misunderstanding of statistics. The first one being, um, I forget her name, the 
woman who had oh, two Sa- children. Sally Clark. Sally Clark. Yeah, yes. Sally Clark. Yeah, that was a travesty, an absolute travesty, and it's not uncommon. I can talk about it if you'd like. Yes, please. I can tell your listeners mm-hmm. if they'd like. Sure. Yeah. I don't so, know. So in, I, I don't know how many of my listeners are in the UK. So and I think outside the UK, people are not not at all familiar with this case. Um, and it was a while ago now, right? Um, oh, it was. It was. I, I I was still quite young when this happened, so I was still like not even a teenager. Get off but my I lawn! I vaguely remember it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm in my thirties now. It's okay. I've I've caught up. But Sally Clark was a solicitor, and she had the twin misfortune of losing two of her infant children in relatively quick succession uh, due to sudden infant death syndrome. And there was no evidence of foul play. But what happened was she had the misfortune of getting investigated, which is one thing. And the next thing is she had a very esteemed professor, uh, Professor Sir Roy Meadow, who was Mm. considered, you know, an unimpeachable genius of uh, child protection. And he testified at her trial, and he this is how he did the reasoning. He said, for an affluent, wealthy woman like Sally Clark, the odds of one sudden infant death were about 1 in 8,100 or something, right? Mm. And then he reasoned that, therefore, the odds of two is like flipping a coin twice. It's like the square of that, right? Right. And when you do that number, it comes out about as 1 in 73 million. So he told a jury that the chances of her being innocent were one in 73 million. And she was convicted pretty much solely on that evidence. Now, the reason statisticians got up in arms about that was because he'd made two major errors, one of which is he had assumed these events were statistically independent. The same way if you flip a coin, it has no memory of the last coin flip. We know, however, that diseases that run in families, like sudden infant death, if you have one in the family, for genetic or environmental reasons, you're far more likely to have a second one. Mm. So he that was the first mistake he had made. But the second mistake he'd made is much more common, and it's called the prosecutor's fallacy. It's so common in courtrooms. So he had basically told the jury that the odds of her being innocent were 1 in 73 million. Now, even if he got his numbers right and he didn't, that would have been an incorrect interpretation. What that had to be tested against was the alternative hypothesis. What are the odds that a mother would kill two of her children? Mm. And when you do the maths correctly, as the Royal Statistical Society did, it turns out it's far more likely to have two tragic infant deaths than it is for someone to kill two children. Now, Sally Clark was eventually exonerated, but she had spent three years in jail and it deeply affected her. She was vilified in the press. She was um, lambasted. As a, as a, as a, for infanticide, she never committed, compounding the tragedy she already experienced. She turned to alcohol, and when she got out of prison, she was addicted, and she succumbed to alcohol poisoning in two thousand and seven. So unbelievable! It absolute miscarriage. Now, the one good thing that came out of that is that in the UK, at least, laws on statistical evidence have tightened in courtrooms, and about five other women who'd been falsely convicted with this man's testimony were re-examined and found to have been mistakenly convicted. So some other people were exonerated as well. But there's much bigger examples. I mean, the FBI's microscopic hair analysis department uh, is is probably the most contemporary version of that, mm. which you might be familiar yes, with. Yes, yes. So, yes. Um, well, I, I wasn't familiar with it until reading your book. 
um, when I was reading about the guy who was falsely convicted of murder, even though he had a pretty airtight alibi and he was convicted on the basis of of similarity of hair. Um, Yes. So it's a shocking. His name was Kirk Odom. And it's a shocking story. He was a young man. He was about 18. And in uh, Washington, there had been a very brutal uh, robbery and rape. And the woman who was the victim of this could only identify that a, um, a, a man, a black man of medium complexion had attacked her. Now, she also saw he was clean shaven. Kirk Odom was 18 and he had a pretty rock solid alibi for he, he had been at his niece's birth and there was witnesses to that. And because he looked a bit like the sketch, he was asked if he thought, you know, is this you? And he said no. And he had a very good alibi, so he wasn't that concerned. Until the FBI came and said, we found a hair at the crime scene that exactly matches yours. And he was convicted on this evidence. He spent about 32 years in jail until his former public prosecutor had the DNA evidence re-examined and found out that the hair actually came from a dog. It wasn't even human wow. hair. And, so and they when they delved into They this, didn't DNA test the hair at the time? This is... So, not properly. You see, DNA isn't magic. It's, you know, you have to, again, you have to know why you're doing a test. And in the early days of DNA testing, they didn't always know what they were doing. This particular FBI unit did a comparison of hair. But to do that kind of comparison, you need massive samples and you need to be confident in your statistics. So when Kirk Odom was convicted in front of a jury, the FBI profiler said it's a high statistical certainty that this is a match. But when they actually looked into the figures, they found that they had no basis for that. They had dodgy statistics that they were extrapolating from. And in fact, most of our tests weren't replicable. They didn't work. Since the investigation has opened into that, they have found over 11,000 cases where people were wrongly convicted with DNA hair analysis. Mm. And 32 of those people are on death row, nine of which have already been executed. Good. So yeah. it's pretty. It's pretty now, Lord. Kirk Odom had the other American factor going against him. He was a black man in America, which unfortunately means your odds in getting fair justice are a little bit skewed as well. But the fact that the the FBI have now admitted they made serious errors with this is is a step forward. But for the 11,000 people who were falsely convicted, probably not so great. It's astounding that it was a dog's hair. But even if it had been a hair of another African-American man of his age, I mean, what's the likelihood that those two hairs would be very similar? Um, well, but, here's the thing. That's Yeah, you're right. This, this thing called cold hitting and hot hitting. So if I look at a big database of people and I say, you know, well, the odds on that happening are one in a thousand, but I randomly, like, I had hundreds of thousands of people walking through there. It's not a big deal if I get a match. You'd expect a few matches by chance. Mm. So you also need to know if it's a hot hit or a cold hit. Uh, what they were doing they, they had no real logic to it. In fact, the, the National Academy of Science did a report on it. And to say that it's damning is an understatement. It basically slams the entire operation as pseudoscientific. So uh, it's kind of scary that convictions were got on the basis of that. But that's the CSI effect, isn't it? People see what they think is forensic science and they go, oh, you know, that's, that's uh, infallible. In reality, a test is only ever as good as what you're testing it for and the analysis that you've put into it. A test in isolation probably tells you nothing. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's also kind of a kind of a bit of a cargo cult effect. 
um, it looks like it sounds uses the language of science. It has the kind of trappings, so it looks seems like it's science. It seems legitimate, doesn't it? Yeah. And it, it can convince most people, absolutely. I had actually never, even though I use that phrase often and I know what it means, the cargo cult, um, sci- the cargo cult thing. Um, so, for example, you know, when somebody is, one is absurd example, I came across in India, so I'm, um, I'm a Parsi, Zoroastrian, and there is a, an ultra- Like Freddie Mercury? Yes, exactly. <laughs> he's my he's my Farouk hero. Farouk Sara, yeah, 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 absolutely. Uh, Apro Farouk, he's my he's uh, uh, on his birthday. It's like kind of Christmas. Um, my Facebook feed is full of people like celebrating him, full of Parsis celebrating him. He's very popular in the Parsi community. He actually recorded a song. There's a Queen song where he actually sings in Farsi, which I think is Mustafa off the jazz album, oh, the first track. But, yeah, but Farsi so, has nothing to do with Parsi. It, it, you know, you're right, it doesn't. And I always mix the two up. Yes. But I've always wondered why he sang that track in Farsi, which is he probably just felt interesting like it. to me. Yeah. So Parsis... Uh, well, if you can. I yeah. Guess. I mean, Parsis came to India in about the 8th century. Um, and so really, at this point, we're very um, ethnically um, distinct from Persians back in, back in um, Iran. And quite and fairly genetically distinct, actually. I had 23andMe done um, because, especially in the early years, we intermarried with Indians. Um, and also, um, uh, Parsis, I don't want to get into the whole Parsi thing in huge detail, but Parsis speak, traditionally speak Gujarati. Um, although I did grow up speaking English at home. So, well-educated Parsis speak English, but but the language associated with the Parsis is is Gujarati. Okay, well, I'm I'm learning a lot now because I had no idea. So this is this is good for me too. So, um, um, yeah. So there is an ultra-orthodox branch. I got distracted thinking about Freddie Mercury now. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I'm very good at derailing conversations. Apologies. Oh, me too. I'm very good at being derailed. <laughs> I can be derailed for, yeah. I can go halfway around the universe on a, on a derailing. Um, I think it's John Muir who says when you try to get hold of any th- single thing, you find the entire universe hitched to it. I really empathise with that's that. That's actually beautiful. Yeah, that's really nice. Like, <laughs> that explain that explains a lot about how I try to work. I do one thing, and suddenly, oh no, everything's attached to it. So, um, so there's there's an ultra orthodox um, Zoroast kind of branch of Zoroastrianism. They are really tiny, um, a tiny number of people, and um, they uh, there was this article they published, and it was all this kind of scientific stuff about Zoroastrianism. So the reason that we, um, the reason we face the, uh, the reason we face the sun when we're praying and the reason that we um, tie, uh, the reason we make reef knots, for example, when we're doing um, kasti prayers. So there's this ritual where you put on a, you wear a kind of singlet and you tie and untie a rope belt while saying prayers. It's called uh, kasti prayers. It's um, a a ritual in Zoroastrianism, um, 
and they were they had a an explanation which was based on the magnetic poles of the earth quantum mechanics um biomechanics the structure of the hand and the chemical the chemical elements that make up um a cotton rope to explain why it is that we tie reef knots in a particular ritualistic way when we're tying the belts. It was it was okay. a, the most yeah. extraordinary. I mean, that is obviously insane to almost everyone. It's a, it's a, it's a little bit cargo culty, isn't it? it? Yeah, that's 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 like cargo cults on steroids. Well, it might be worth like um, I, I you said earlier on that like the term cargo cult we use it all the time, but. What people often don't realize is is cargo cults were a real thing. Mm, yeah. So during the uh, that's what I the, just the learned World from your War, book. Um, it's cra- it's 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 absolutely crazy to think about. So during the Second World War, they had um, enclaves that had never been contacted by what you would probably call, I guess, Western or or, or society at the time, even though it included Japan. Um, and during the the outbreak of the Second World War, these South Pacific islands were suddenly invaded by American forces or by Japanese forces. And they came with all the trappings of society. They came with cargo planes and aircraft towers and runways and all that stuff. And the natives watched this, like aghast. They'd never seen this. And sometimes these uh, soldiers would give some of their supplies, their cargo, to the natives. And then as quick as they had come, when the war ended, they all disappeared. But to the natives, they took on a religious significance. And they started building grass runways and grass control towers, effigies of what they had seen. Um, waiting for the cargo to come, which had obviously taken on this religious dimension. Of course, the cargo never came. And the reason why is even though they had taken all the aesthetics and all the, um, you know, the, the visual appearances of what they had seen, they were missing something fundamental about what had actually happened. And with cargo cult science, as Richard Feynman coined, if something has the illusion of science and all the trappings of it, but is missing something fundamental to being part of a scientific method, He'd defined that as cargo cult science. So things that use a lot of scientific looking notation and, uh, you know, kind of aesthetic, but actually are being not based in evidence or don't follow the precepts of science, we would call cargo cult science. And you see a lot of it. For example, your cotton rope story seems very cargo culty. It, it has all these nice scientific terms, but really out of context in such a way they don't really mean anything. But to the layperson might look scientific. Yeah, I, I was just thinking as you were saying that, have you read Station Eleven, the novel by uh, by Emily Sinjin Mandel? Um, I haven't. It's on, it is actually on my list. I, I've, I have a backlog of stuff I meant to catch up on. So, um, so that's set in a future after a, uh, a gigantic uh, pandemic has wiped out most of humanity. Um, and... Uh, so few people are left that really no, almost no scientists, engineers, etc., are left. And um, oh, oh, I think the people who are left are are a group of actors. By chance, act, actors are are the ones who are left over. So none of them know anything about technical stuff. And eventually, this kind of kind of cargo cult builds builds up around the their their ancestors who left behind all their technology long since useless um you know so all 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 the kind of old 
iPhones and MacBooks and things uh, that are have there's no all all the electricity is down and gone after this disaster. Everything has has run out of battery. Everything is just there inert, and they create these muse these altar like museums to the um, to the the cargo quote unquote um, our technology, but in in their future. It's a really great novel. That's really interesting, and that, that reminds me of what Carl Sagan said about um, us. We've had, we've arranged a society where we're uniquely dependent on science and technology, and yet we've cleverly arranged things so that almost no one understands science and technology. And he called that a prescription for disaster. Maybe uh, Station Eleven seems to be nodding towards that Saganistic lament, you know. Well, I I I discussed this in uh, with my guest um, Stephen Stewart Williams, whose podcast I think will come out a couple of weeks before this one. And in his book, The Ape That Understood the Universe. So we have an ape theme going on. You both have ape books. <laughs> um, you and Steve. Um, in in that book. At one point, he is in Borneo, Steve's in Borneo, and he observes this orangutan who is basically um, punting. He's got on, I mean, wow. you're at Oxford. So the orangutan is standing up on the back of a boat and he's got this big um, tree trunk or large branch. And he's basically punting this raft uh, down a river. And um, he's, he stole one of the, one of the human's rafts. And has escaped in it, punting off. <laughs> <laughs> and um, Steve sees him, and he says that first he thought, "Wow, look at that orangutan making use of a technology that he doesn't understand at all." And then it suddenly dawned on him that we are all orangutans making use of technology that we don't understand, or most of us. I certainly am. Absolutely, I do all the time. I'm using this recording equipment, <laughs> and if you ask me to code it myself you'd be in trouble. You know what I mean? We all, we have, we work as a society and we do. I'm just thinking actually, when I was thinking of cargo cults there, I have a two-year-old godson mm -hmm. and I watched him the other day trying to use voice command on a toaster, uh, <laughs> which to me shows that he, he's picked up some of the idea of how some technology can be voice commanded, but not everything. So he doesn't truly understand what it's for, but it was very funny to see him try to voice command it. So I let him do it for a few minutes as a good godfather. Wow. Yeah. I mean, I had a little girl trying to press the screen of my MacBook, trying to like make things work. <laughs> she's And she's like, she's two and a half. She's two and a half. Um, you know, so she already understands iPads and things like that. And she was like pressing yeah, her grubby yeah. little fingers onto the screen, trying to like make the yeah. app open. <laughs> Amazing. That's it. Mon mon monkey see, monkey do. <laughs> I mean, that's how we all learn. And, yeah. and all of us learn that way. <laughs> um, so um, let's look at some other ways in which we can be fooled. So I'm, oh, one of the, one of the ways is, um, uh, is this kind of false equivalence? The debating of positions as if both positions were of equal value. And this is so beloved Absolutely. by UK media. <laughs> um, and, and, and indeed, like it, it, it's a world problem. So a lot of my, my personal interest is uh, in, in vaccination policy. And I do a lot of work on that. Um, but one of the major issues you've seen historically in, in media outlets is a sense of false balance. And false balance or false equivalence is when you take two positions and because they are contrary, you say, well, they must be roughly equivalent and you afford them equal prevalence. Um, and that's fine if you're talking about opinion, 
But it's not so fine when you're talking about facts. If you're talking about climate change, where the overwhelming scientific evidence says that this is a human-mediated thing, and you give that an equal platform to someone who's saying climate change doesn't exist, you have, to the general public, created an illusion that these two positions are equivalent, when they are certainly not. And the psychological research tells us that really affects people's perception. Up until a few years ago in America, for climate change, for example, coverage was roughly 50-50 in mainstream newspapers, whether even though the scientific consensus is virtually incontrovertible. You see the similar thing happening in vaccination policy. The amount of TV shows and radio shows that I have had a producer ring me very excited, asking me if I'll debate some well-known anti-vaxxer. And I have to point out to them that no, because they will leech vampirically off my credibility, and it will make the general public feel this is scientifically contentious when it isn't, mm. or contentious when mm. it is not. And it's irresponsible. And this is like media ethics 101. But the amount of times that that still falls to a scientist to have to explain is a, a bit frustrating at times. Right. It's it's difficult, I think, to also make people understand the difference between freedom of speech, i.e. you allow people to say whatever they want to to, to deny the Holocaust and say that vaccines cause autism or what whatever they want to say, they should be free to say. And mm. you specific or and you don't if they have already been invited to speak at a place, you don't try to drown them out with noisemakers um, or you know physically prevent them from reaching the auditorium or, or the various things that have happened, a few of the things that have happened with controversial speakers lately. That no, I think it's, but it's very context specific. Yeah, but, I mean, you, like, but you don't give them a platform. So if you have a platform and you have limited people that you can have on your platform, you have a responsibility to be careful about who you give that airtime to. For sure. So, I mean, I, 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 I see it from both angles, but the, the first thing I would say is, like, free speech is, is, is often mis, misinterpreted. I was writing about this recently for the Irish Times. Free speech simply means that you cannot be arrested for your beliefs, that they cannot be censured from you. It does not mean freedom from the consequences of speech. It does not mean that you are guaranteed a platform. For off, You often see people saying their free speech has been taken away from them because YouTube shut down their channel for hate speech. Well, no, it hasn't. Your speech is still there. You're still allowed to be hateful. It's just that you don't get a guarantee of a platform. Now, when it comes to cancelling speakers, I have mixed opinions on this one. For example, I was involved in a campaign in the UK to uh, cancel Andrew Wakefield, the renowned um, fraud who made the fake link between vaccination and autism. He was meant to be speaking at a university, and we had that cancelled because it was a threat to public health. He never should have been given that platform in the first instance. So freedom of speech is not the same as freedom of consequences of speech. And I think it's really important to make that distinction. Mm, I think we're going to disagree in, in on the details here, but I don't want to get into those weeds too much. Um, but I, I do agree that there's there's responsibility to use platforms wisely and to not create this kind of, not give people an air of fake respon uh, respectability, um, not allow them, yeah, as you said, to an air of credibility they yeah. do not deserve. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. The other thing I wanted to wanted you to talk about for us was um, scientific uh, significance, um, and so 
when when results are statistic, statistic significant, sorry. So when re- results are said to be statistically significant, stop me if I've un- misunderstood this. Um, what that means is that you can be fairly certain that the effect was not due to chance alone. So um, when you say it's significant, what you're expressing is your confidence that the results were not due, were not random, that there is an effect there. Um, but what people take it to mean is that the effect was significant, i.e. the effect was large, was meaningful, yes, whereas it could yeah. be a very, very small effect, um, which is nevertheless not due to chance. Yeah. So there's two things that two interesting related concepts there, and you've kind of you kind of articulated them really well. But just to kind of elaborate slightly, the first thing is statistical significance is if you take two groups, right? If you took um a hundred people that took medicine X and a hundred people that took medicine no medicine, right? And you wanted to see if this medicine had any effect, right? You might look at how they respond to some kind of particular marker you think should be a surrogate of this. Now that group of 100 people, either one of those groups, they're going to have variation inside them anyway. You're going to get the classic bell curve of responses, right? You're going to say, okay, you know, some people are sicker in that group than others. Some people will be healthier, you know, but overall it's going to be, you know, a defined distribution of people. That's your sample group. If you have the other group that you're testing, that'll also have some spread. And what you're doing with significance testing is you're going, well, these groups are going to be slightly different by chance. That's going to happen anyway. Mm. But can we say that the differences between these groups are inside the envelope that you'd expect by chance? Or are they far beyond what you'd expect by chance? Or even a little bit beyond? So you have to define your your, your boundaries for significance. And then you do this thing called hypothesis testing where you, where you test that. But if it's a very, very big group and you've lots of data in both, you might get something that's statistically significant, but is in clinical or practical terms so small as to be useless. That's your effect size. Mm. So actually, you need you need to do both. Like it's no good if you say, well, these groups are very slightly different. Whereabouts? If that's never practical, it, it doesn't mean anything. I think when people see significant, they think they they hear they read meaningful. Significant doesn't always mean practically meaningful. It just means that the two groups have a very sometimes a very small difference. But it's a small difference you can measure. Right. Whereas, uh, like you said yourself, effect size is really what matters. How much impact does this intervention have? Is it large enough that we can justify doing this or large enough that we can say these groups are very different? So these two things together have to be considered in concert and not in discord. Mm, Yeah. Yeah, like the circumcision example, in the World Health Organization are spending billions on their African campaign for a 1.4% difference. Um, so the effects... Have, cha- have they changed that recently? I wasn't sure if they I, changed their, their ruling on that recently. Um, I was only following little bits. But. So the most recent thing that I followed from Brian, I haven't been following it closely since I... Um, finished writing the article because I'm a hack writer, so I'm I'm on to another topic now. Um, But um, from what I was following uh, from Brian, I gather that, uh, no, they've actually expanded the campaign and now they're doing infant circumcision in Africa, neonatal circumcision. Um, And it's... um, 
um, the guy who heads their medical um, their uh, um, committee on on African HIV and circumcision is he is the maker of the Gomco circumcision clamp. So I'm immediately getting these. I get these kind of prickly. I don't want to be a conspiracy theorist feelings when I hear that, but um, it's a it's a little striking to say the least. Um, but yeah, they've started now a neonatal campaign, and um, mm. it's Brian was citing. So this, I think that the figures are not are not very. Um, uh, the the results are not clear yet, but. It seems that the um, circum the rate of HIV infection among heterosexual men in Africa has gone up, and that there now seems to be seem to be more circumcised men have HIV than uncircumcised, and this may be partly because of misinformation, because the World Health Organization are are very much plugging the idea that. If you've been circumcised, you have less than half as much chance of getting HIV than otherwise. So um, that mm. this may have led some people to not use condoms. So there might act, yeah. actually be a, a net negative effect. The, it, and, and I mean, circumcision is a, is a bizarrely controversial area. For in Europe, no one even really thinks about it. It's not a big deal. Mm. We don't really do mm. it. Whereabouts in America... It, it seems to be a, a, a cultural touchstone. And the fact that you have someone who has a vested interest, you know, involved in, in these decisions should raise eyebrows. And, and indeed, the WHO is very good, but it's not perfect. Yeah. Um, yeah. I don't know enough to, to comment apart from saying that that unfortunately does happen. Um, but the idea of good science is that we should constantly be revising our right. findings in the light of new evidence. And that should be happening at a, at a constant basis. Another thing that I came across, and again, I don't know. Um, so I don't know how accurate this is in the grand scheme of things. And I'm not going to make an argument here in favor of keto versus low fat diets. I don't feel really qualified to do that. Um, but uh, what I did follow was a specific experiment, which had been very much um, misrepresented or potentially misrepresented. Mm -hmm. So it um, they took, they had four groups. Um, one group were eating high fat and high carb. One group were, I, I'll try and get this right <laughs> without being able to consult where I've written it down. Let me see. One group were eating high fat and high carb. One group were eating high fat and low carb. One group were eating... Um, high carb and low fat, and the other group were eating low carb and low fat. The poor, I don't know what the fourth group were eating, basically vegetables. Um, and they looked at their kind of health outcomes. And what they concluded was, so um, two of the groups had better health outcomes than the others. And they were the um, they were the high fat and low carb, and the low carb and low fat groups. And from that, they concluded that low fat diets lead to better health outcomes. And that's because of the way that they analyze the four groups. 
So the, the, the factor that they looked at in common was the low-carb factor rather than looking at when they looked and saw that the outcome was best in the low-fat, low-carb group, they concluded it must be because of low-fat. Um, of course they did. Yeah. I mean, like, I, I have to say, I, I have strong negative opinions of anyone who will try to push any kind of dietary stuff. Because dietary science, as done as a science, has given us the same message for decades. That a balanced diet with portion control and healthy eating habits is the best thing you can do for your health. Now, the reason this gets in my craw so much is because I often deal with cancer patients. So my research is in cancer. And you would, you'd, you'd, it would break your heart to see the amount of absolute dietary evangelical evangelicals who go up to people that have cancer and try to get them to take up a restrictive diet like keto or like low fat or like whatever diet du jour is going on that day without any cognizance of the fact that restrictive diets are incredibly poorly recommended for people with cancer. Um, and when you deal with these, and I, I come across them in forums sometimes, um, they have this bizarre single-minded focus to try and – it, it's this reductive fallacy. They try to make diet much more simple than it is. Diet's incredibly complicated. And the idea that you could just put people into simple categories without any – analysis of lurking variables without any confounder analysis what they've done there by the way the experiment you described is a cohort study mm -hmm. and even then they're not particularly strong it's you an, need to do that for yes, decades and, with high control and it's so, an observational study so it's not a scientific study and there's there's no there's no control group um yeah yeah. And the surrogate outcomes they use could mean anything now I get in this a lot because what good dietary science says is that basically balanced diet all good right and what you have is you have these little particularly with the keto diet especially you get a lot of these absolute zealots but they're very good at selling cookbooks or their their own personal philosophy but they're very bad at evidence and i get frustrated with them because they, they speak with a confidence that is not proportional to the evidence because they really believe this already in science you should never start from the conclusion and then try to justify it you should follow the evidence to the conclusion. They put the cart before the horse, and therefore, as far as I'm concerned, it is cargo cult. They extrapolate from tiny studies that they've done themselves that are observational to try and tell you about how people with different conditions should be eating. Mm. And it's it's entirely irresponsible. We've had cases in Ireland, where I'm from, about patients being told this when it actually might kill them. So I do have an issue. I think it's irresponsible and I think it's unscientific. Mm. I've, I, I just, I have no, um, at this point, I have no faith in nutritional science at all. I'm not saying that, I'm not suggesting that nutritional science could not be accurate. I just feel that I'm not, I'm, um, there is no way of getting accurate information from that branch of science at this moment. So I just avoid um, avoid really processed foods and sugar, which everybody seems to agree is bad. I eat a lot of vegetables, which everyone seems to agree is good. And apart from that, I do what I feel suits me. Well, that's it. I mean, and it goes it, it goes right back to, um, you know, people people do it for two reasons. They do it for like the notion of health or they do it for um, for how they look or whatever else. There's, there's different reasons people take different diets. If you diet, you will lose weight because you're causing calorific restriction. And we are basically 
we're still slaves to the second law of thermodynamics. You know, calories in, calories out. That's the thing. Um, but at the same time, it, dietary science is going to be very hard to do because it's incredibly complicated. It differs on an individual level. So these kind of studies that come out that have done on like three mice and a dog that try to tell you how you should change your eating habits, they're pretty much garbage and they should be treated as such. So, yeah, I, I hear you there. Um, so I think that example, the, the specific example from this uh, experiment that I was discussing is, is Simpson's par paradox or maybe related mm. to that. The example you gave was the nurses. So um, nurses who took uh, uh, menopausal, postmenopausal nurses who supplemented with estrogen had fewer heart attacks than nurses who did not. Um, but then when they did a double-blind large cohort study, they found that estrogen increases the risk of heart disease. Um, can you explain to us, can you talk us through what, why that is, why that discrepancy? So this is the uh, Simpsons paradox, right? I, it is, but I didn't write about that one. Oh. Uh, I, I'm familiar with the... Oh, okay. I, I wrote about <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. I must have heard that somewhere else. Yeah. Yeah, no, it is. I, I've heard about that one myself, but I'm, I'd be very careful of speculating outside of stuff I, I know enough mm, about mm. to speculate. Okay, sure. So, uh, yeah, I must cardiovascular have health scares the crap out of me. So, I, yeah. <laughs> no, it's okay. I, I do talk about Simpsons Paradox, but I talk about it with the uh, the, the, the Berkeley uh, example. Oh, yes, the Berkeley, Berkeley admissions. Were, uh, mm -hmm. In 73. This is fascinating. So, in 1973, uh, Berkeley were sued for sexual discrimination because it seemed that they were accepting about 45% of male applicants, while only 39% of female applicants. And on the face of it, that seems pretty damning. Um, but when a statistical analysis was convened, it found that on a faculty-by-faculty -faculty basis, they actually slightly favored women. Now, how does that make sense? Well, the reason why was most men were disproportionately applying to degrees like engineering and chemistry that had a very high acceptance rate all around whereas women were disproportionately applying to psychology and English, which had a lot of qualified applicants, not many places, and therefore a high rejection rate. So when you look at the subgroup analysis there, because overall, on a faculty-by-faculty -faculty basis, women were slightly favored, it still skewed the analysis that let, uh, what was actually happening there, and Simpson's paradox often manifests this way, when there's a lurking variable that you haven't considered, and you don't consider it, your analysis will be wrong. And that's an example of Simpson's paradox, a paradox that goes away when you look at the reason underlying it. Another example, which I love, is there was a study done years ago that seemed to find that women who smoked lived longer than women who didn't. Mm -hmm. And if that seems a bit crazy, the reason why they did that is in their group of people that were smokers were all young women. Mm. And the people that weren't smokers were old women. So when they came back five years later, a lot of the older women were dead mm. and a lot of the younger women were still alive. Um, when you looked at it at an age-by-age -age basis, so young women who smoke, young women who don't smoke, the young women who didn't smoke were healthier and the old women that didn't smoke were healthier too. So depending on what you break your group down to, Simpson paradox can, if you don't take a control of a lurking variable, your analysis will always be skewed. I love the smoking one because it's just so counterintuitive. I give it a talk sometimes. I go, how can you make smoking better for your health? And people always look really horrified. And I have to say, yeah, 
by bad statistics. Yeah, you know. <laughs> don't. Also, don't inhale. <laughs> yeah, don't, like Bill Clinton. You know, you smoke, but you don't inhale. Um, I actually had a friend who had a. Um, um, he had an idiopathic uh, testosterone um, loss in adulthood. It's unclear what. Well, that's what idiopathic means. It's unclear what this was about. Uh, probably, and there's nothing wrong with his testes, so probably a neurological issue. And um, wow. okay. that was it was not detected for ages uh, because his doctor tested his testosterone levels and he said, well, they're a bit low, but they're within that normal range. But he was looking at the normal range across all ages of men. Um, and mm. my friend was 30. So, um, the, sub, the subgroup you should have been looking at was right, was, yeah, yeah, of course. Um, yeah. so you can imagine the, the variability, yeah, it, it, it happens all the time because, like, even when we're doing scientific experiments, we have to consider what's the cutoff for something, and uh, and it is, it is true. I mean, I, I talk about it in the book as well. I mean, I'm a, I'm a big believer in science, but science has to be performed correctly, and you have to talk about the limitations. So when I'm doing an experiment, uh, and if the only people I have in my sample group are aged 20 to 30, there's a limited amount I could say about people outside of that bracket. And that's something that everyone has to be cognizant of. Results can vary depending on the group you're testing them in. And that's especially true on genetic and medical and those kind of results. You know, It's probably less true for physics, but certainly more true for biology. It's definitely, um, I was married to a neuroscientist and at the Wellcome Trust, Neuro Disney, as the, as the other people um, would call them, <laughs> um, at the Wellcome Trust lab, they were, they were doing lovely kind of blue sky research. Um, and their research subjects were almost always um, UCLA, UC, UCLA, UCL undergraduates, um, so that clearly, that clearly skews your results we we know that in psychology that's a problem too so my ex-partner was a psychologist and certainly almost all the the graduate students who were doing these experiments were psychologists which actually isn't great because a lot of psychology experiments in particular what they're what they claim they're going to test is not what they actually want to test but because the psychology students know that they're preempting it mm. which means mm. you're not getting on a biased group so there have been some measures to make our sample groups more representative but again that's that it's a hard thing to do because you know it's not a trivial problem to solve but it's certainly one we have to look into solving well so many psychists going through a replication crisis right now part of that must be to do with um i mean some psych experiments are dependent on self-reporting so certain things you mentioned the myers-briggs um, test, for example, oh, God, yes. yeah. uh, which I've taken about four times because um, it used to be very popular in the States, in American academe at the time when I was working in American academe. Um, and employers were always asking you to take this test. And I had different results all four times. That doesn't surprise Completely me. different. And I feel like whenever I'm given any kind of psych um, personality test, um, and it doesn't matter whether it has this scientific aura or whether it's something patently woo-woo like the Enneagram I also took. Um, it's very fun and it's kind of, 
there's a narcissistic pleasure in sort of choosing <laughs> and trying to define your personality. And the profiles are always flattering. They're like if you look at the the Myers Briggs, and it's the same with the astrology. Mm. You look at astrology, all your profiles are flattering, mm. and there's a reason we're more likely to identify things as flattering as being descriptive, even when they're not. There are good psychological metrics you can use, but they have to be done by a professional, and they're not always flattering. Right. If someone tells you something negative about yourself, do you want to believe it? Eh, not as much. Right, like the Newcastle test. Um, or something like that. You mean? Well, there, there, there certainly there are there's different psychometric evaluation tools, uh, but again, they require a trained professional to administer with expertise right. and interpretation. So anything you do yourself, probably question mark anyway. It's interesting you say though. You, you mentioned psychology as replication crisis, and that's true. But what I will give psychologists is this: psychologists noticed this a long time ago mm. and have been taking active steps to correct it. Mm. Uh, in biomedical science where I work, it's much worse. Like, for example, in landmark cancer experiments, it has about they have, we have about 11% replication, which means that 89% of our experiments Oof. can't be replicated, aren't real results. That gets worse in some fields of genetics. The, uh, the fantastic scientist John Ioannidis did a paper on why most published research findings are false. I have had the pleasure of working with John on a paper on precisely why that is as well. Um, it is really fascinating. It's there's a lot of science that is bad and non-replicable. Which, by the way, you know, science should be replicable. That is a very basic precept of science. Um, but we're not getting that in biomedical, in particular. Psychology was, you know, beating itself up about having a replication rate of about forty percent. Mm. But like in biomed, if we're hovering around ten, I I don't think we can be inside our, our glass house and throw many stones at people. <laughs> the, pro the, the problem is we, ha we have to improve this en masse. Now, science is self-improving. That is a good thing. We're noticing this. This is becoming a discussion that we have to have about how do we make results better. Sometimes results are poor because, as you point out, we've used sample groups that aren't representative. Maybe we've used UCL students only when we should have been looking at whole populations, or maybe we didn't have enough data, or maybe someone fudged it. Working out why it went wrong and correcting it is a big part of science as well. Mm. What do you, what is causing, what are the main causes of this bad science? So there's the publish or perish thing, that it's not sexy yeah. to publish your null results. And I think one of your rules was the hotter, the sexier, the kind of area of science, the more like, the more distrustful you should be. Sure. And that's one of, that was one of John's famous findings. Now, I've had the pleasure of working with him on this. Um, we found in our in our modeling work that if you create an environment where scientists are rewarded based on their publications, and then you set up that environment so that you're only really likely to get a publication if it's a sexy result and if it's a positive result, even though most science will not be positive, it'll still be important. You know, like finding out a drug doesn't work is still very important. But trying to get that published mm. is much harder than if you'd found out the drug did work. Mm. So there's a human element where maybe either advertently or inadvertently people select the data or fudge the data to find a positive result where they shouldn't, or they bury negative results. And um, we looked at this, uh, and we, we our argument would be if you want to improve scientific publishing, you need to take the pressure off scientists to reward them based on their publications because it's an incentive and all humans respond to incentives. Mm. And even if only a small proportion are going to be biased or, or weird about it, that's still enough to skew things. 
Mm. So we need to be better. And we need to, I mean, it sounds ironic to say, but scientists themselves need to be the, the protectors of a scientific method and the integrity that comes with it. But you'd be surprised by the number of scientists I have met that when challenged on something, don't actually understand the scientific method. A classic example I'll give you is in a lab I used to work with. I had a colleague who was very diligent and very brilliant. And uh, there was a PI who had just been hired because he got all these very sexy papers in Nature and Cell. And my colleague was trying to replicate his results and she'd spent months at it and she couldn't get it to work. And she came up to him and said, I, I can't get this to work. Can you Can you help me with it? And he said, oh, don't even worry about it. I had to do this on 312 mice and it only worked on eight. So I published them. <laughs> so what he had done there inadvertently, he wasn't deliberately committing fraud, is that he had not accurately reported his results. Mm -hmm. He had selected his false positives. Cherry picked. And cherry picked his false positives to get an entirely misleading example. The reason my friend couldn't get this to replicate is that she was a better experimenter. And she was better. Her, I always joke, she was also married to a statistician. And when she told him this, I, I was out for dinner with them. His face was incredible. <laughs> it was a vision to watch. But um, the point is, this happens all the time. Mm. Like I, I, I've actually had that kind of story happen with three different friends. So I could be any one of them. You know, um, that, It's not always fraud. It's sometimes just incompetence. Well, I said earlier on in the chat that sometimes scientists are the worst at statistics. That can happen for sure. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Um, so what can, what can we do to, um, those of us who don't have a science education, um, what can we do to protect ourselves against being bamboozled? Actually, I don't think the science education is, is really necessary in one ways, because the kind of way we get bamboozled these days is by disinformation and misinformation. We live in a, a paradoxical era where, you know, even though we have access to the world's repository of information at our fingertips, misinformation and indeed disinformation, deliberate misinformation, has never been more prevalent. And it's affecting our politics. It's affecting how we discuss things with one another. It is causing all sorts of situations that maybe we didn't interpret or, or predict as well as we should have. Um, the biggest single thing that anyone can do, I think, because I, I mean, when I started writing the book, I'm surprised, I, I was surprised by how much of the book started to be about human psychology about a quarter of the book is about human psychology mm, mm. which i never predicted when i started writing this but if you want to understand why we go wrong you have to understand how we think so one of the big things we will do is that we um we will share information based on how it resonates with us for example if something outrages us and we're so annoyed by it we are far more likely to share it than if it's kind of neutral if it agrees with our with our prejudices or our positions already we are far more likely to share it. This is because we're all slaves to motivated reasoning. We don't like changing our minds. Uh, we like to find things that confirm our biases. But the big problem with that is that leaves us really vulnerable because all someone has to do is tell us what we want to hear and we are vulnerable to them. Mm. Uh, a classic example, during the American elections in 2016, the same companies that were pu publishing hyper-partisan uh, pro-Trump material we're also publishing hyperpartisan democratic material. It was the same companies doing it because they realized that we all have walled gardens and we all select our, our follower count or our friends and they're like a lot like us. We're very homogenous. Um, and we're, we're, we tend to share information that, that kind of suits our preconceptions. We should have no shame in changing our mind. Changing our mind is a virtue. The only shame we should feel 
is if we refuse to change our mind when the evidence demands it. So the biggest thing we can do is to be skeptical of our sources, and especially when they agree with us, especially when they're telling us what we already believe. That is when we need to be the most skeptical. And I know it sounds weird to say it, but you really need to challenge your own beliefs a hell of a lot more intensely than you challenge someone else's. Because you'll find when you dig deep enough into your own thinking, there's things that are wrong there. Uh, comforting as they may be, you know, it, they, we shouldn't hold on to things that are mistaken because they will ultimately betray us in the long term. Mm. Yeah, I think we have to also try to depersonalize. So um, I've been recently writing on letter to, to Buster Benson, um, who has a book out called Why Are We Yelling? And he has suggestions for diffusing more difficult conversations. And Buster actually says that he feels civility is overrated, that he would rather see people fighting, arguing, even screaming at each other than just um, politely pussyfooting around points of disagreement so that each person can stay in their comfortable bubble of like-minded mm. friends. Um, uh, yeah. And and so he suggests, but he suggests kind of gathering people of different opinions and then plotting all the opinions on a graph separate from the people and looking, trying to getting everybody's opinions anonymously and then plotting them on the graph and talking about the opinions and trying to just depersonalize to feel that you're not, I think you say this, I can't remember if you say this or if it's in Darren Brown's um, book, because there are a couple of places in your book where you echo things that uh, Darren Brown has said. Um, and he's also done quite a lot of debunking of uh, frauds, as you probably know. Um, but Absolutely, yeah. you um, and now I've forgotten what I was going to say. This is what happens when you're 50. <laughs> um, it, it happened to me when I was 20 and it's still happening in my 30s. So don't uh, don't feel bad. I think it's just normal. Oh, my God. Well, it was probably the most brilliant insight so far voiced in this conversation, I'm, I'm sure, because it has just disappeared. Um, well, I, th I think I know what you might have been saying. Okay. So one of the things I argue very strongly <laughs> in the conclusion of the book is that we have to understand each other better. We have to have more discussions and less debates. But the other thing I say is that we're all kind of slaves to a thing called identity protective cognition. This is that we it. define yeah, we define you. ourselves as our ideas, but we mm. are not our ideas. Because if we define ourselves as ideas, then if someone challenges those ideas, we feel attacked. That's why people have fights over ideas whereas ideas should be malleable you, they should be there and you hold on to them for a while and then someone gives you a better idea and you're like yeah my idea was garbage i'm taking this one mm -hmm. um, but we don't do that we define with I, I identify as this kind of person mm -hmm. so we need to de dis deconnect our uh, or de disconnect even our identities from our ideas because your ideas are often wrong but you're mm -hmm. still fundamentally a person and that doesn't take your intrinsic value away if your idea was wrong. We're wrong more often than we're right. The trick is every day to be a little bit less wrong. Mm. That's all. Mm. So I think that might be a great note to end on. Um, but is there anything you've wanted to say that I haven't given you a chance to say? No, I'm, I'm, I'm fairly happy. I mean, you, I, I can 
I can talk for Ireland. So, I mean, I could go with anything. So it's probably best that I'm stopped, to be honest. Um, I would happily talk to you for hours, but I'm exceptionally busy at the moment um, because letters letter was shortlisted for major funding and our interview is on the 4th of December. So please... Go and prepare. I won't yeah, stop you any longer. <laughs> do anything that anybody who wishes to pray for us or send vibes out into the universe, <laughs> please do. But especially go sign up, write letters to each other. Um, <laughs> it sounds really cool. I'm going to check it out later on. Thank you so much for joining me, David. Well, an absolute pleasure. An absolute pleasure to speak to you. Good luck with the application. And I'll be, uh, I'll be rooting for you. And I hope to hear good news soon. Thank you. Bye-bye. Listen, go get your stuff done. I'll see you later. Bye-bye. Have a lovely week, everyone. You've been listening to Two for Tea, the accompanying podcast for ARIO magazine. ARIO is a non-partisan political and cultural digital magazine with a universal liberal humanist slant, edited by Helen Pluckrose with the assistance of sub-editor Yours Truly. At ARIO, we hope to counter the current atmosphere of frenzied partisanship and hysteria with calm, well-reasoned articles and civil discussions. Both ARIO and Two for Tea are entirely audience-supported. You, our readers and listeners, make these conversations possible. You can support the magazine, the podcast, or both on Patreon. Look for ARIO, A-R-E-O, A for Apple, R for Robert, E for Edward, O for Orange, and Two for Tea. All patrons will get access to free monthly patron-only podcasts and other perks. Plus, by becoming a patron, you will keep these platforms alive and flourishing. Two for Tea is available on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and all other podcast subscription sites. If you're listening on a podcast app, take a moment to hit that subscriber button, give us a rating, write us a brief review, even just a couple of words. Spread the news. Thank you so much for listening. Have a wonderful week.